0: SBS, a world
1: of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Kamaragal people and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea from fresh water to salt water. Yiru Damarang, hello, I'm your host, Luana Grant, and welcome to NITV Radio for this Friday, the 28th of July. Coming up on the show today, a conversation with Kat Henaway, founding director of Women's Business, who chats to NITV Radio about the 2023 First Nations Women's Leadership Symposium and why First Nations women are still underrepresented in the workplace. Also coming up on today's show, a story by SBS News. The 30th of July marks the 15th anniversary of a court case that gave sea rights to the Yongu people, guaranteeing Aboriginal people ownership of around 80% of Northern Territory's coastline. And the honeypot ant found in desert areas in Australia is being studied by researchers for its medicinal qualities. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. In this bulletin, July is set to be the hottest month ever recorded in human history. The federal government to reintroduce the Housing Australia Future Fund bill. And in sport, the Matildas hoping to keep their World Cup dreams alive after a loss to Nigeria. A survey by Migrant and Refugee Settlement Agency, Ames, Australia has found newly arrived migrants and refugees know little about the proposal to create an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The survey of 150 people from 30 countries studying English or accessing migrant or refugee settlement services in Melbourne and Sydney found more than 67% were either not aware or only partly aware of the voice proposal. 75% were not aware it would mean a change to the Constitution. The survey found the more people know about The Voice, the more likely they were to support it. Ames Australia says the survey shows a need for more information on The Voice to be disseminated to culturally diverse Australians. A West Australian senator has backflipped on claims the Perth Mint was holding gold for terrorists and Russian oligarchs. Green Senator Dorinda Cox made the initial claims under parliamentary privilege at a committee hearing into the Perth Mint, which examined its compliance with money laundering and terror laws. Senator Cox first told the inquiry she had information that the gold was being held on behalf of oligarchs, drug cartels and outlaw bikies. She raised reports a prominent former bikie was able to purchase $27,000 worth of gold bullion from the mint with his driver's licence. Research has confirmed that honey produced by an Australian ant carries powerful medicinal properties that could be used to fight harmful bacteria. Researchers from Sydney University say the honeypot ant, found in the deserts of Western Australia and the Northern Territory, possesses unique antimicrobial activity against bacteria and fungi that could make the liquid useful medicinally. Danny Earlrich from the Jupin Language Group, who runs Honeypot Ant Tours in Kalgoorlie, helped the researchers track down specimens for their study. He says First Nations people have used the crawling critters medicinally for thousands of years, as well as for a sweet treat. It's
0: been a part of our, well, my upbringing ever since I can remember, my mother's upbringing and my grandmother and great-grandmother. And I mention the women specifically because... Um, Traditionally, it's the women that only dig for them, and uh, men don't do that normally, and that's just the way it's been. So to this day, I've never actually dug them myself.
1: United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the era of global warming has ended and the era of global boiling has arrived. New data from world meteorological organisations show July will be the hottest month ever recorded in human history. Mr Guterres says the data suggests warming is unequivocally caused by human activity. He's called on world leaders to work to limit global temperature rise.
2: Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. It is still possible to to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the very worst of climate change, but only with dramatic, immediate climate action.
1: The United States has issued a heat hazard alert for workers as temperatures soar nationwide. A White House official says it's the first time such an alert has been issued to protect workers, including those in construction and agriculture. Nearly 40 percent of the U.S. population is under heat advisories. President Joe Biden says he doesn't think anyone can deny the impact of climate change anymore.
0: I don't know anybody who honestly believes climate change is not a serious problem. Just take a look at the historic floods in Vermont, California earlier this year, droughts and hurricanes that are growing more frequent and intense, wildfires spreading a smoky haze for thousands of miles, worsening air quality. The record temperatures and I mean record are now affecting more than 100 million Americans.
1: Prosecutors in the United States have broadened their criminal case against former President Donald Trump. They have charged him with new counts of obstruction and willful retention of national defense information, adding to the 37 criminal counts he is already facing. A spokesperson for Mr Trump says the new charges are another attempt by President Joe Biden's administration to harass the former president and influence the 2024 election. Prosecutors have also brought new criminal charges against a maintenance worker at Mr Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. They have accused Carlos de Oliveira of helping his employer to evade officials who were trying to recover sensitive national security documents he took from the White House. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is expected to announce he'll reintroduce the government's politically risky Housing Australia Future Fund bill to the House of Representatives next week. Federal Parliament returns from its winter break later. Before the break, the $10 billion future fund stalled in the Senate when the Coalition and Greens refused to support it. If the legislation doesn't pass the Senate again, the Prime Minister could ask the Governor-General to dissolve both Houses of Parliament and send voters to the polls early. US senior ministers have touched down in Australia for foreign affairs and security talks. Over the next few days, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin are to meet Defence Minister Richard Miles and Foreign Minister Penny Wong. They are expected to discuss defence and security ties, climate change and economic issues. Also on the agenda are emerging technologies, the clean energy transition and the role of critical minerals. The Assistant Commissioner of New South Wales Police says a new specialist task force established to investigate the links between a spate of shootings and an organised crime can be expanded if required. The task force was announced after a fifth person was targeted in a shooting in Sydney this week. Assistant Commissioner David Hudson has told Channel 7 100 police officers have been allocated to the task force amid fears the city's gang wars are escalating
0: to um, get out there amongst uh, the criminal element um, and uh, gain information, um, turn people over, do what we have been doing for the last 18 months in preventing um, further escalation of these matters. Um, That 100 people, however, can grow at any time um, based on a needs basis. If we need more, we will put more into it.
1: And in sport, the FIFA Women's World Cup saw the Matildas suffer a 3-2 loss to Nigeria in Brisbane last night. Australia's national women's team now sit third in Group B, behind Nigeria and Canada. The side will likely have to beat Canada in Melbourne on Monday without Sam Kerr to avoid a group stage exit at their home World Cup. Emily Van Egmond scored the opening goal for Australia. She told the ABC the side can recover. We've been in these situations many times before, and um, you know this this team's, you know, time and time again showing what they're about. And no time to dwell. We've we've got to pick ourselves up, and I know that that's what this team will be doing exactly that. And we play for each other, and yeah, we have, we have to win against Canada. And in cricket, Australia is in a healthy position after day one of the fifth and final Ashes Test. A win would give them their first Ashes series victory in England in 22 years. Australia ended the day 1-for-61 after bowling England out for 283. David Warner was lost early again. Australia dropped as many as five catches, with wicketkeeper Alex Carey's error in putting down Harry Brook on five, the easiest and most glaring of the missed opportunities. And now for a look at today's weather. Perth showers 19, Adelaide a possible shower 17, Melbourne showers easing 18, Hobart a shower or two 16, Albury-Wodonga showers 14, Canberra a shower or two 13, Wollongong partly cloudy 22, Sydney also partly cloudy 23, Newcastle wind easing mostly sunny 23, Brisbane, partly cloudy 23, Townsville, also partly cloudy 26, Cairns, a possible shower 27, Alice Springs, partly cloudy 26, Darwin, mostly sunny 31 and the Torres Strait Islands, also sunny 31. And that is NITV Radio News.
2: NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 pm or any time online.
1: Welcome back to NITV Radio. I'm your host, Luana Grant. Still to come on the program, a story produced by SBS News marking the 15th anniversary of a High Court case that gave sea rights to the Yongu people, guaranteeing Aboriginal people ownership of around 80% of Northern Territory's coastline. And the honeypot ant found in desert areas in Australia is being studied by researchers for its medicinal qualities. But first... Earlier this week, I caught up with founding director of Women's Business, Kat Henaway, who is facilitating the 2023 First Nations Women's Leadership Symposium taking place in Nam next week. Kat chats to NITV Radio about her thoughts on why there is still an underrepresentation of First Nations women in the workplace and discusses the work she is doing in this space and her hopes for the next decade for First Nations women. Thank you so much for joining me today on NITV Radio.
3: Thank you, Luana, for the invitation. I appreciate it.
1: Firstly, you are the founding director of Women's Business, which is a collaboration of women's organisations aligned with the goal to amplify and empower First Nations women and also women of colour. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about what Women's Business does and the important work that you do?
3: Yes, um, Women's Business was actually established in 2019 um, in response to uh, an opportunity that I had to partner with Women and Leadership Australia. Uh, We were in discussions about um, this crazy idea of uh, launching their inaugural Indigenous Women's Leadership Symposium. And uh, at that time, I was consulting and I saw a real opportunity to set up a company and create a a brand and... uh, and co-brand the event with Women in Leadership Australia. So we went ahead and had that very first uh, symposium in 2019. And uh, as a result of that, um, I also partnered with Women for Election and uh, more recently with Generation Women. These are peak organizations. They're female organizations in Australia. They are predominantly white women-led organizations. And the reason I like working with them is because um, women's business collaborating with peak organizations means that we can help them to understand how to create culturally safe spaces for First Nations women to come into their programs and their events.
1: This year, the 2023 First Nations Women's Leadership Symposium will be taking place in Nam um, in August on the third of August, I believe. Um, yeah. And you'll be facilitating the day. Can you tell us a little bit more about the one-day event and the speakers and the panel discussions?
3: Yeah, sure. This is the second symposium, and we we chose to host it in Nam because we're really, really interested and excited about what's happening in terms of. Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership in Victoria, particularly um, in relation to the treaty um, uh, negotiations and uh, the Aboriginal Assembly. So we wanted to put a little bit of a spotlight on that and invite some of the uh, Victorian uh, Aboriginal women leaders to come and tell us a little bit more about that. The theme of the event is the NAIDOC themes for our elders. We will be hearing from women who would be considered elders in their communities. And also, of course, we always uh, include younger First Nations women and uh, women from more diverse backgrounds. So throughout the day, we'll hear from speakers uh, such as Adjunct Professor Sue Ann Hunter, who is currently the Deputy Chair commissioner of the Europe Justice Commission. Also, uh, people like Norni Barrow, who's the founder and chef at Mabu Mabu. Also from Victoria's Sophia Pierce. Uh, she is the owner and principal consultant of Culpa, Culpa Marditi, which is uh, up near Mildura. She works a lot on country. We'll also hear from Courtney Eugle, um, who is a VFL women's player at Essendon. Mm-hmm. So we're hearing from women in politics, in Indigenous food industry, from sportswomen, uh, and women working on country. Uh, So it's going to be a really, really exciting day to hear all of these incredibly diverse stories.
1: And the tickets for the symposium are available for purchase at wla.edu.au. Now, just moving on, you've said it's not that First Nations women don't aspire to work. It's just that Australian workplaces are culturally and psychologically harmful environments for them. Can you Mm. please expand on this statement a little bit and what is being done to make workplaces safer and more understanding towards cultural and psychological uh, safety of First Nations women?
3: What we know is that about 51.5% of First Nations women are in the workforce. So that's just over half of us. Um, And so that is much lower than... uh, Indigenous men, who, who um, account for 65 percent um, in the workforce, the reason I talk about cultural safety is it is one of the number one reasons that women, certainly First Nations women, and also um, culturally and racially marginalised women, or you know the other term they use is women of colour, a lot of them experience very similar things in that when they go into Australian workplaces. Um, they find that the workplaces are psychologically and culturally unsafe um, because the workplaces do Mm. not accommodate for cultural diversity. Um, And, you know, that's largely due to, um, I guess, the hangover of 70 years of um, the White Australia policy. So that was a, you know, a racially mandated policy that, that governed all decisions in Australia from 1901 to about 1970. And, um, and so that positioned white people in Australia as the dominant culture, as, uh, the people that were entitled to leadership positions and, you know, um, prioritized in all things in the workplace. So now that we have more and more Indigenous people entering the workplace, what we're finding is that those workplaces, because they were the culture of those workplaces were designed under um, a racially discriminative, discriminative policy, the workplaces in themselves are often racially discriminative. So there's a lot of work that Australian workplaces um, need to still do in terms of making the workplace safe, for certainly for First Nations women particularly. You know, we see, because of the Reconciliation Action Plans, we see a lot of workplaces committing to doing that, to creating more cultural safety, Um, uh, but there's still a long, long way to go.
1: And Supply Nation have done the the stats on um, the 4,000 verified Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander businesses listed in their database Mm. and of these 29% are owned by First Nations women and Indigenous Mm. businesses are over 100 times more likely to hire Indigenous workers than non-Indigenous businesses. So Mm. based on this, which non-Indigenous businesses do you think are getting it right in this space and what more do you think can be done to change these stats?
3: So in terms of non-Indigenous businesses. I think if you have a look at the top tier, the Elevate WRAP organisations, they're the organisations that have been working with Reconciliation Australia for a very long time. And uh, they have the top tier reconciliation action plans. Uh, most of them are the you know top four banks, the top four accounting houses, Qantas, Um, Telstra, organisations like that. Um, And so they've been working, as I said, with um, Reconciliation Australia for a very long long time trying to understand how best to create that cultural safety in their organisations. But it's quite interesting, um, the Supply Nation stats, you know, 4,000 verified businesses, 29% of them, owned by First Nations women. And the fact that Indigenous businesses are 100 times more likely to hire Indigenous people is really fantastic because the more we are empowered to run our own businesses, the more likely it is that we will provide that culturally safe space, uh, particularly for First Nations women to come and work in. Um, And I actually do a lot of work with Titters in Business. Uh, I run their business-ready workshops across New South Wales. So I teach a lot of uh, First Nations women how to start their businesses and many of them are looking to start consulting businesses and they're very interested in stepping out of the workplace and, and starting little consulting businesses. So that's really exciting because they get to be empowered as First Nations businesswomen. And as their businesses grow, they get to employ more First Nations women.
1: I guess that leads on to my next question. What are investments, I know you've just mentioned a little bit just then, but what other investments have been made in career leadership development programs to enable First Nations women to succeed and become confident to take up senior management roles or even, as you said, starting up their own businesses?
3: In 2016, I was working for a leadership school and at that time we saw the statistics around uh, career leadership for First Nations people. And um, what the research showed was that most Indigenous people knew that there was career Development programs available in their workplaces, but only about 16% of them thought that they were entitled to access career development. And it's one of the reasons I set up Women's Business is to, you know, work with organisations to create more opportunities for First Nations people to come into career leadership development. Uh, because unless you you have access to career leadership development in your workplace, uh, it's very very hard for you to. Um, uh, apply for you know more senior roles and move up the rank. You know historically we've seen a lot of Indigenous people in entry level jobs, um, but unless we get more and more access to career leadership development, um, we we're not going to see more and more people move up the ranks and uh, be promoted in those senior senior roles in in corporations. So um, as I said, I'm I'm working with these organisations to to look at what we, what more we can do in that space.
1: And I guess, how can corporate Australia support diversity, equity and inclusion in the workplace?
3: So uh, the Diversity Council of Australia did a piece of research a couple of years ago um, and it was called the, it was in conjunction with Jampana and uh, U- University of Technology Sydney and the, serv- the research was called Gary Yala, Speak the Truth, Gendered Insights. So one of the recommendations from this uh, research um, suggests that uh, institutions and you know corporations um, need to focus um, and pay closer attention to their workplace culture. And the more they can create cultural safety and understand what cultural safety is, um, the more they will retain their First Nations staff. So the research says that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in culturally safe working environments are the most satisfied with their jobs and they're the least likely to consider leaving. So cultural safety reduces staff turnover. It means that you know you can create a space where indigenous people feel uh, comfortable and safe to work. Uh, which means that they'll enjoy it more and stay longer.
1: I guess it just leads on to my final question. What are your hopes for the next decade for First Nations women?
3: Actually, very optimistic. <laughs> Earlier this year in May, I attended the Wiyani utangani Summit in Canberra, and it was organised by June Oscar AO, um, who had been uh, doing this Wiyani utangani research and report um, for the last five, six years that she's been at the uh, First Nations Social Justice Commissioner at the Human Rights Commission. And uh, at that summit, she announced that early next year, um, they will be establishing a First Nations Gender Justice Institute at the Australian National University. Uh, And what that institute will do is continue to implement the work uh, in the wianyu Tangani framework so so there's a the continuity of this work. June Oscar is really taking this report and embedding this implementation framework to continue to ensure that change will happen over the next ten years um, for first nations women. so to answer your question, my hope uh, in the next decade is that first Nations women will transition from being the most marginalised demographic in this country uh, to, in 10 years' time, being the most empowered demographic to lead this country. And, I mean, in terms of politics, in terms of corporate leadership, I really believe we can can achieve that.
1: There's obviously a lot of work that needs to be done, but there's so much work that is happening. And you're doing such amazing work in your field and in women's business and I just want to thank you so much for joining me on NITV radio today and all the best for the women's leadership symposium as well and thank you so much yeah that thank you so much for joining me it's been great to have you on
3: wonderful thanks join
1: the conversation on radio online
2: and mobile you're with NITV radio
1: Welcome back to NITV Radio. The 30th of July marks the 15th anniversary of a court case that gave sea rights to the Yongu people. The win guaranteed Aboriginal people ownership of around 80% of Northern Territory's coastline, a ruling that included precedence over any commercial interest or fishing. A series of bark paintings were at the centre of the ruling. It's been 15 years since a landmark High Court decision granted sea country legal rights to the Yongu people of north-east Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. The ruling, which gave traditional sea rights over coastal waters, set a precedent with a series of bark paintings playing an important role in the High Court's recognition of the Yongu's connection to the coastal waters. Matt Pohl is the manager of Indigenous programs at the Australian National Maritime Museum, which is also marking the anniversary. He says the 2008 sea rights case was probably one of the most significant extensions of the land rights movement in Australian history.
4: The recognition of the Yolngu people's territorial rights over their seas and coastlines of Blue Mud Bay um, is a recognition of the... the pre-existing connection to country that has been ancestrally connected to the Yolngu people in that region and it was um, a really significant case in lots of sort of ways. The um, 80 bark paintings that were made as part of the Saltwater Bark Painting Collection, the community see those as legal documents more so than paintings. They were presented to the High Court of Australia and the High Court of Australia actually recognised through these paintings and their the patterns, the subject matter, that there was a deeper connection to that of the which overruled nullius in a sense or Aquinalius as it mm-hmm.
1: is <laughs> The ruling ended a decade-long battle by the Yongu to have ownership of the intertidal zone around their lands recognised. The ruling meant that around 80% of the Northern Territory's coastal line was now under Aboriginal ownership, meaning that traditional owners could make important decisions about fishing and commercial interests. But it wasn't the first legal fight for native title to sea in the Northern Territory. The movement for sea rights dates back to the 1970s. This was when the Woodward Royal Commission into Aboriginal Land Rights noted that questions about land rights also extended out to sea. In his final report, released in 1973, Justice Woodward recommended that a buffer zone of up to two kilometres out to sea should be closed to non-Indigenous people to protect Aboriginal land. Marcus Barber is an environmental anthropologist in land and water at the CSIRO and has mapped waterways for sea rights.
0: The history of the sea rights, it goes back to the creation of the Land Rights Act in the 70s, that the Yong'u were integral in in enforcing, um, in, in I guess, or in stimulating in uh, non-Indigenous society the creation of that act to recognise their rights. At the time, there was discussion about the fact that Yong'u understandings of their country go into the sea, um, and there was a very limited form of that that was able to be... Uh, recognised in the Land Rights Act, but it was insufficient for a whole range of reasons.
1: Integral to the 2008 ruling were 80 BART paintings by 40 artists. The Maritime Museum's Matt poll explains the paintings were spread across 15 different clan groups, which stretched all the way from Blue Mud Bay up to Yirukala and across to Arnhem Bay. He says the paintings are a living ancestral connection, highlighting the importance of the sea in people's lives.
4: Not surprisingly, there's ancestral stories of creation depicted in a lot of these paintings, but there's also per- people's personal totemic affiliations to many of those sea life as well, and many of the responsibilities that people have. I mean, the first paintings are connected to the the origin of the whole story of the bark paintings. There was a legal fisherman who, for several hundred years had been, um, you know, desecrating these waters. What sparked the case was the desecration of Baru, the ancestral crocodile, and uh, one of the Willie family members who found the, um, the crocodile, which had been desecrated. It just sparked this... Um, this conversation, which led all the way up to the High Court case.
1: Mr Pohl says the artworks have acted as a type of template, a chain of stories that have been used for self-expression and as a protest document. Jambawa Marawili is an Aboriginal Australian artist whose work has played an essential part in the recognition of sea rights.
0: Art painting, it's, it is a document. That from what I say, it was a document from our ancestral bin to
1: our grandfather, to our father, and to us. This is the story about our sea. The first legal fight for native title to sea country also occurred in the Northern Territory, with the people of Crocker Island having native title recognised to the seas surrounding their island in 2001. There have now been a number of successful native title claims to sea country. James Holman is a director of the Juklapunyu Aboriginal Corporation, which is also involved in marking the anniversary of the 2008 ruling this week in the small community of Baniyala. He hopes the anniversary will raise more awareness about sea rights.
0: And I think it's important to understand that country means land and sea. Uh, Waters flow through the land into the sea, back into the clouds, back into the land, and that cycle doesn't end and it's something that is a
1: part of all the decision making planning the vision and the story of what is happening the bark paintings have been on display at the australian national maritime museum in sydney on and off for a number of years matt pole says they are extraordinary in their detail using artistic production to tell complex stories
4: when the artists talk about patterns coming from the land or from song that comes from the sound of water or even dance moves that comes from the wind blowing through the trees, there's this way that the land and the sea speaks through artistic production. And in many ways, that's why these paintings sort of write themselves in the sense the living people who they're connected to are just custodians of temporary parts of that story, which is passed on intergenerationally through, you know, families since time began and until until the end
1: and that story was produced by peggy jacumelos and adrian Wainstock for sbs news we'll be back with more after the break welcome back to nitv radio i'm your host Luana grant the honey pot ant found in desert areas in australia is being studied by researchers for its medicinal qualities Researchers have been drawing on traditional Indigenous knowledge of the ants as part of their research. Peggy Jacumelos reports.
5: They play an important role in the culture and diet of Indigenous people in Western Australia and the Northern Territory. They're known as honeypot ants for their swollen abdomens that are filled with a sweet, edible honey. For Danny Ulrich from the Indigenous community of Jupan, they've always been part of his life. For as long as he can remember, his community has regularly gone to the bush hunting and gathering food, and it's traditionally women in the community who search for the honey ants
0: you know, we would go out in the morning, the ladies would pick a spot to dig. And uh, then the men would all get in the, you know, go out and hunt the kangaroos and goannas and goats and turkeys and whatever else is out there. And by the time we'd come back, um, you know, we'd come back in and more often than not, um, we'd be looking for the ladies and all we'd see is at the top of their heads. Cause they've dug down that deep. <laughs> so, um, and you know, it's. The honey ants were always a, a, a nice treat, so you weren't you weren't digging that much that you were going to have a big meal from them, and you and you wouldn't want to eat that many of them either because they're terribly sweet.
5: Mr Ulrich and members of his family run Goldfields Honey Ant Tours in Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. The Honeypot Ant Tour allows people to see just how the ants are dug out and also gives people a taste. Cultural tradition, though, means it's only women who search for the ants. So Mr Ulrich says it's his mum and aunt who conduct that part of the tour.
0: I do go out on the day. I also do the food and stuff for the tour, but the ones that do the heavy lifting and the digging... It will be my mother Edie and Auntie Marjorie, um, and yeah those without those ladies it'd be <laughs> not getting done at all really.
5: Mr. Ulrich and the company has also assisted researchers at Sydney University, further look into the medicinal qualities of the ants. The connection started after Andrew Dong from the School of Life and Environmental Science at the University made contact with the company. They then help supply Sydney University with some of the honeypot ants for research. It's not an easy task as the ants are generally hard to get. The research, published in the journal Peer J was led by Andrew Dong and Dr Kenya Fernandez from the university. Dr Fernandez says the study is the first time that ant honey has been investigated for its medicinal properties. She explains how they differ from many other ants found in
2: Australia. Yeah, so the main difference is the fact that these ants have this specific class called repletes. So the way it works is that the worker ants will sort of designate one ant to be this replete and they will feed it with nectar. And that ant will collect all of the nectar and its body will slowly swell up and engorge until it's swelled to about the size of a small grape. And that these ants that are then called repletes, um, they hang from the ceiling of the colony. And in times when there's food scarcity and the workers need to distribute the honey, the ant will then regurgitate and feed all the workers in the colony. For thousands of years, honeypot ants have been
5: used by Indigenous people to treat colds and sore throats and other ailments. And the researchers have confirmed that the ant's honey is also effective in treating the bacterium, commonly known as golden staff, which usually starts on the skin and nose, but also causes infections, including boils and
2: abscesses. The most interesting thing we found is that the ant honey is very active and it's also quite specifically active, which means it's really good against some pathogens and not so good against other pathogens. And that's really interesting to us. And the ones that it has the strongest activity against seems to align in some way with the kind of pathogens that the ant would encounter in its environment. So for example, we found that the honey was really good against Cryptococcus, which is a pathogen that would be found in trees. And it's something that the worker ants might encounter as they walk through the trees in search of uh, nectar and we also found that it was really good against Aspergillus which is kind of a fungus that is present really everywhere in the environment but also specifically in the kind of desert dry arid soils that these ants live in. So it really seems like the activity of the honey is in some way shaped by perhaps what the ants encounter in the environment and what they need protection against.
5: The research also confirmed that ant honey worked differently to Manica honey which is also used as a topical treatment for skin infections and wounds the honeypot ant possesses a distinctive effect that sets it apart from other types of honey. This means that the ant honey could contain compounds with significant antimicrobial properties. As for the next step, Professor D. Carter, also from the School of Life and Environmental Science, says that remains to be seen. Well, we don't know what the magic ingredient is yet, so we haven't been able to progress that that area of research yet
3: Um, so no we don't know if we can but if um we would hope that if uh, we were able to to determine exactly what it is that it might be something that we could make or uh, really our colleagues in chemistry um could make Um, but at the
5: moment we have no idea what it is so we don't know how how easy or hard that would be Peggy Giacomelos SBS News
2: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
1: And that's all we have time for on today's program. You can listen back to the show anytime online or catch any of our stories on our website at sbs.com.au and you can also find us on Facebook. NITV Radio will be back next week on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, 1 till 2 p.m. with more stories from right across the country. We end today's program with a track by Young Warriors. I'm your host, Lawana Grant. Mandango, have a great weekend.